I always tell people that the single canoe is the most difficult sport and the most difficult event on the Olympic program. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I am well. How are you holding up? Doing well. I got my badminton net in the mail today. So you are ready to go. We had a one of those cheapo badminton slash volleyball sets that you you know they're portable and you take the part but you, you know that if you want to set it up for badminton that the net is just too much so we wanted a regular badminton net and went out and found one now you need to get the badminton training right and, and i got i got some better shuttlecocks too <laughs> wasn't there a huge controversy at badminton was it oh. or at london we got to go back and talk about that where they were purposely losing so they would get a better yes it was at london 2012 where eight players were found guilty of not using best efforts against the olympic oath that's right they were taken out of the tournament disqualified so no purposely losing no i don't you're too competitive for that <laughs> i don't understand this not losing we do actually i'm i'm so competitive that we don't keep score <laughs> that way everyone's happy <laughs> but let's be honest jill you are keeping score in your head. Yeah, usually, usually. But I got to say, so I haven't pulled out the shuttlecocks yet. I got some nylon ones because they did have feathered ones at this place. And I really was tempted to buy some because I wanted to see what feathered shuttlecocks were like. But I know that they are very, very fragile. So maybe we'll see how the badminton progresses. We'll work our way up. You won't be losing on purpose? No. Is there any cool outfits? They just wear t-shirt and shorts, right? Right, right. We got to come up with something better. Like a little, it, it should be like sort of tennis like. Right. So I think there at least has to be some feathers in your hair. <laughs> oh my God, you could dress as a human shuttlecock. <laughs> you wear like a white chef's hat kind of dome and you have a feathered skirt on. Oh my gosh, I wasn't thinking of it like that. I thought you meant like put like the crown of feathers in my hair so my head would be... Oh, that could work too. And then you just wear like an all white outfit underneath. But then you'd have to stand on your head all the time because it's the other way. <laughs> That's a whole other sport. You know what I'm doing for Halloween? <laughs> I'm wearing the coconut bra and the grass skirt and you're going to be the human shuttlecock. We are set <laughs> if Halloween actually happens this year. <laughs> That will be a sight to see. I think. There is not enough bleach anymore to disinfect your eyes from that. <laughs> All right. Well, we're staying in the water today. Safer that way. That's right. We are talking canoe sprint. Last week, we talked with Luca Jones about canoe slalom. And this week, we're talking canoe sprint. And we're talking with Andres Toro. Uh, flat out, this man is amazing. He is a four-time Olympian in the sport. He competed for two different countries. So for Rome 1960 
and Tokyo 1964, he competed for Hungary. Rome, he won a bronze in the men's doubles 1,000 meter. And Tokyo, he got a fourth in the singles 1,000 meter. And then he decided to defect during those Olympics. And he moved to the U.S., got degrees from the University of Michigan, became a citizen here, and then competed for the U.S. in 1972 and 76. Post-Olympics, he remained a fixture within the canoeing committee, coaching at various levels, including Olympic teams. And he continued to further the sport in this country and around the world. Plus, he was a member of the USOC's board of directors as an athlete's advisory member and was secretary and executive committee member of the USOC from 1984 to 1988. We had a lot to talk about. We do. He recently published a memoir called Chronicles of an Olympic Defector to share his life story. As you can imagine with resume that long, we talked with Andres for a long time, so we're splitting his, his interview into different parts. This week, he tells us how the sport of canoe sprint works. Take a listen. Well, let's start talking about the sport, how canoe, how sprint canoe works. So you've got one to two people in a boat, and they paddle as fast as they can down a flat course. So what are the boats made of today? Well, today is uh, mainly made of fiberglass. But when I was back in Hungary in uh, our early 60s, 50s, and uh, early 60s, it was all made out of wood at that time. It was a uh, the old-style rib construction with a very thin veneer stretched on the ribs, and it was a very fragile craft. And uh, we uh, we had to take care of it, and uh, and it was uh, it was many times uh, just a, just a misstep in the boat. Uh, it, you know, you could, but uh, the Danish manufacturers uh, established a, a company up there called Struer, and that company, very thin veneers, uh, they call it cross planking it, and they put these veneers crosswise in the boat, so it was it was very stiff and very rigid, and and with day boats they dominated pretty much the uh, boat building up to then up to the 90s. And uh, so they made the singles and the double canoes and also made that the single, the two-man and the four-man kayaks out of this, out of this construction. Then the fiberglass came in, uh, a carbon fiber and fiberglass construction came in, into the scene and, uh, and it changed the whole picture. They, people made a mold out of these wooden boats. The boat became much more durable and, uh, and much, much lighter and it just was much better for the clubs for use because in the club boats, the, the boat gets beat up pretty well because, you know, youngsters are using it and, uh, and people, they, they, they don't take care of it as much. as you know, It's not mine, it's a club boat kind of a thing. And, and so the fiberglass boat really changed the whole picture. And now there is no wooden boat anymore in the competition. There is all fiberglass, but there's two major manufacturers in the world. One is Nello, uh, which is a Portuguese company. Another one is Plastex, which is, I think, is still a Polish company, or they may have sold it now. So, the, But there are other countries uh, manufacturing their own because uh, yeah, both became very expensive. A, a single kayak now, it's uh, six, seven thousand dollars and the double is about 10000 and I don't know how the four will cost uh, nowadays, but uh, it seems to me, you know, that uh, 
the sport is really uh, pricing themselves out of the competition. How many boats would a competitor own at any given time? Uh, usually, you just have one boat. You know, either you buy it yourself or a club buy it for you, and and that's the boat you want to race. You really, interesting enough, it's all come out of the same mold, but each boat is a handles a little bit differently. Particularly the canoes, you need the steering as part of the stroke. In a kayak, you have a rudder. So you could you could manipulate the rudder with your feet, but in the canoe you have to steer with the paddle. And so each season uh, you probably have one boat, and and when it gets a little bit too loose, you you change it out for another boat for the next season. You using one one boat only, but in the, of course if you paddle the double, you and the single you have to have two boats, one a single and one a double. So it's an expensive sport. Plus, you have to have a paddle. You know, the paddle is, again, for many years, it was a wooden paddle. Now it's becoming more and more fiberglass and carbon fiber and, and all that. It's really a, another revolution. In, a lot of paddlers like the wooden paddle because it gives a little bit. And others are, are like the fiberglass shaft and a fiberglass bit because it's a little bit stiffer. So it's, it's really an individual choice. And a lot of uh, boat builders do manufacture major offer barrels out of fiberglass and they have different molds and, and every year they try to change it a little badly just because it's, it's a marketing kind of a thing. And, and, and it's I don't think there's any difference between the barrels now, but uh, for marketing reason, you know, they one year they're selling it for four hundred fifty dollars, and next year they came out with a new model dollars. So the prices just keep increasing. One thing that amazes me about canoe is just it's how strong you have to be and how athletes manage to stay upright in a canoe while balancing pretty much on one knee and one foot. What's the advantage you know, of that I, position? Yeah, I always tell people that the single canoe is the most difficult sport and the most difficult event on the Olympic program. You're not only balancing on one knee in an offside position to steer that boat straight. And you know that itself takes a couple of years to learn it. Particularly now when the boat dimensions changed in the last uh, oh I would say twelve years. So there is no width on the boat specified. So the boat got narrower and narrower. It's, it's, it's just barely enough room now to kneel in the boat. I don't know if you have seen it, pictures in the latest, but it's uh, it's on the waterline. And, and nine inches wide, long, and you just try to balance on a two-by-four in the water. So it, it is very difficult. This is why the sport is really not very popular and not getting so much youth into you know the family looks at it and say oh i have to have to spot out that pedal of the five six hundred dollars and i don't even know that my my son who is 14 15 years old can even stay upright so it, it is a difficult proposition you know you have to join the clubs and uh, unfortunately the club system in the united states is not as strong as the club system in other countries particularly in europe in 1928 and 1932, the Canadian team went to the Olympics and uh, did an 
exhibition. Uh, but and finally, in 1992, uh, I was to put this on the program because the Canadian promised that they can bring in a, a, a lot of other countries to do this, particularly the Americans. So in 1936 was the inaugural event, the 1936 Olympic, uh, Berlin Olympic Games is the inaugural event for canoeing. And since then, it's on the program. So, but I'm talking about sprint canoeing now. The slalom canoeing is came into the during the Munich game in 1972 was the first time when uh, they first uh, organized the slalom part of the the sport. So there is now two events on the, on the Olympic program. Going back okay. to the equipment, what is underneath your knee? For a long time, in uh, back in the uh, uh, when I started canoeing in the 60s and the 50s, we had a little like a pillow that was about maybe a 12-inch shredded cork, and we kneeled on it. But after about a half an hour, it really compacted, and you know, and it, but it, it formed to the knee. But it was was very hard to knee on it. And for a long time, that was. A, Reason being, it was because it was very easy to change from the single to the double and and the war canoes, which is a bigger bigger craft, and etafoams, which is a as a, a plastic material about four inch thick, and we just going to carve the 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 dish for the knee in in the middle of it. Uh, usually, glue it down to the to the platform, which is in the middle of the boat, so it it, it does not move. So it it is also went through a, a, a quite a bit of an evolution uh, for the better I might add because this foam is is, is very good for the knee and it's uh, almost like therapeutic things you know that uh, you have to have to kneel on it get a little knee massage. What's the dynamic between singles and doubles? Like how in sync do you have to be with the other person in the boat? Key of the double is that uh, a synchronization of the stroke. There is two kind of a technique is, uh, and, and uh, one is for when you matching with the, with the style of paddling, that's one. The second is when you matching the power that you put on the blade. So the synchronization is, is extremely important because some together, but they don't match on the power part. The power part comes in and you and you're pulling yourself to the paddle and this has to be unison. It has to a power has to be applied at the same time to make that motion happen. And it's very complicated. A good coach can see that, but very few coaches have that ability to to actually see that 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 power application and the power power unison application in the boat. And uh, it, that's what makes a, a good coach or a bad coach or uh, or not so good coach. That how you can actually visualize and interpret the stroke and the uh, motion cameras and also some uh, uh, force measuring devices. It became a little bit easier to track. But when I was growing up, we didn't have that. And, uh, and I, had been, I had been using, you know, slow motion uh, studies uh, for mainly application and uh, technique matching but uh, for a matching still uh, uh, more instrumented a little bit more, but it's coming along. And uh, a lot of uh, a lot of countries where canoeing is very strong, like you know Hungary and uh, and Canada and 
you know, some of the other European countries, they they moving into the direction of really take accurate measurements. And, 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 it's, and it's, to me, it's kind of fascinating, but it's, again, it, it adds an other expenses and other technological innovations into the sport, which, in, in my opinion, uh, makes the sport unique and it makes the other countries who they don't have that much money to uh, actually uh, keep up with the sport. So, so it, it is it is very uh, very complicated. And uh, for example, there are many instances when somebody from nowhere come into the 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 top competition and actually actually wins the event. You know, for some unknown reason, maybe it's just uh, more regular training, or uh, or uh, maybe just a personal talent. But it it does get some surprises once in a while. For example. Last year World Championships, the women's single canoe 200 meter event won by an American girl from in, in Washington D.C. from the Gig Harbor Canoe Club. This girl is 17 years old. She has been paddling single canoe in the last three, four years, and she just simply beat the beat the Europeans. You know, no no question asked. Half a boat length. Uh, very unique things. And, and also very interesting things because women canoeing came into the picture about four years ago. Since then, women did not use canoeing. Matter of fact, back in the early 80s, 40s and the 50s, they didn't let women do canoeing because they said that's you know, physiologically not not compatible with the woman body. You know, they may have some complications, you know, bearing child and things like that. So some of these 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 were up in the up in the up in the front and and finally the canadians went to uh and and also the international federation uh supported the the women canoeing uh, inclusion to the sports and four years ago after the rio games finally the ioc said okay we're going to have women canoeing on the program single 200 meter and a double 500 meter event so here it is women got on uh on the canoeing program, and rightfully so. I, I always was a favor of uh, having, you know, a woman application because they they did a lot of some other discipline of canoeing, for example, marathon racing and other discipline of the canoeing. They they did participate and they did, you know, very good results. So now, you know, we, a first time in Tokyo year that's going to be we will have a woman event and we will have a, a woman olympic champion in canoeing which will be a long time to come but that's here now, right now what makes a good canoe course deeper water shallower water cold Quite. warm well it's been a lot of study been conducted about uh, the shallow water effect on the canoe and uh, the rules say the water has to be at least two meters deep in the national race on, on the event. So two meters is now the limit. Unevenness of the bottom also affects the canoe. So the good racing courses, for example, Duisburg in Germany, Seged in Hungary, and some others in Europe, they dredged periodically to the same equal depth all the way to the core. It it does not favor one lane or another lane. But some of the natural man-made courses, 
can do that, but the natural natural course is uh, it's very hard to, uh, for example, a lake. It, it is very hard to uh, adjust that because if you closer to the shore, you uh, get the shallower water and it's going to drag a little bit. And uh, it, it's really uh, the organizing committee's uh, responsibility to, to provide a fair and, and equal course to everybody. And I understand that now in Tokyo, they, they dredge that part of the bay. They're going to have the races in Tokyo Bay. But as I also understand that, that uh, it may be a little bit windy, which would really affect the canoe because the canoe is turning to the wind direction. Now, if you paddle on the right side or on the left side, it may be advantage that course uh, for you. So if, you, if the wind comes from the left side, it tries to turn the boat to the left, so the left path, left side paddler have, a, have an advantage because he doesn't have to steer. He just have to overpower the wind full. And, uh, and many of the courses, interesting enough, in the world favors the right-handed paddler. And uh, hopefully uh, this will not be uh, affecting too much in, in, in Tokyo next summer. You know, speaking of the course being fair to all competitors, that this is kind of bridging to your Olympic days. You know, when you competed, and for for a long time, like up until at least in the eighties, w- at the start they had officials holding the boat until to keep it straight. When did that change? What changed is now up to the ni- mid nineties, when uh, I believe it was either in Duisburg or somewhere in Poland, the organizing committee decided to have a starting gate. A starting gate is really a a kind of a V-shaped buoy, if you will, and holding the bow of the canoe there. And so so you get into this V-shape with the bow and and maneuver there, and and at the start ground is is connected to the mechanism which drops this this V-shape in the front of you, down to the water so everybody can go at the same time. But before that, in 1960 and 64, when I raced in the, uh, and also in 72 and 76, when I raced in the Olympics, it was a pontoon behind the boat. And usually somebody, some of these uh, Navy guys uh, were recruited to hold the boat. And so they, they lay down to the dock and holding down to the stern of the canoe. And uh, at the uh, ready go and, and the start signal, they just let the boat go. Sometimes, although when the wind was blowing, it was very difficult to keep the boat online. So you can appreciate that the, the stern is held fixed to the pontoon. But the bow was drifting one either the left or the, to the right, depends on which direction the wind was blowing. So it, it was it was very difficult to line up. Sometimes it was even impossible to line up. You know, sometimes it was so so much wind that the uh, uh, the people just let the canoe go freely and and try to start free not stern because the stern was not anchored. So that actually the paddler can maneuver the boat a little bit better. Uh, but that but was very difficult in those days, yes. Yeah, because one of the things you mentioned in your book, in your first Olympics, where you were doing the doubles with, I'm hopefully going to pronounce this right, Imri Farkas was your partner. And, yeah. and there was a thought that perhaps the person holding the boat 
maybe held on to you a little longer. Yes. Well, see, the boat has a little deck in the back. So it depends on how, do you, how the people on, on the dock holding on to the boat. Some people reach all the way forward and hold on to the, hold on to the deck. And some other men just hold on to the hull. So it was a little, little difficult. And see, we were in Rome. We were starting next to the Italians. And the Italians, the Navy guys were on the dock. So it was, I, I think it was a little bit, a uh, little bit obvious that we were held back a little bit in, you know, at, at, at that, that position because we had a, we had a good time in the in the heat and and we were definitely favor favor to make the top three and and the Italians we didn't know too much about it and and I think they were that was a little bit of a of a bias uh, situation there, yeah. It's like oh I didn't mean to hold the boat longer. Oops. By making the boat hold longer that. Uh, the problem is that the first stroke, you feel a lot more resistance, you know, and, and, and you try to go, then suddenly the boat gets going, it, it, it's kind of jerks. So it, it, it really gets you out of the, the, the usual rhythm that you, you practice start. And, and then a lot of that uh, disconcerning, you know, how to get back to the rhythm after this, this holding the boat back a little bit. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much, Andres. You can get Andres's book, A Chronicles of an Olympic Defector, at mascotbooks.com, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your local bookstore. I spotted a copy in the UK on Abe Books, so if you're in Europe, that's a little closer to you. We will have Andres back on in June to hear the story of his defection and his Olympic experiences and beyond, so you have time to get the book to get more of the details of his story. Okay, so I tried to put myself in the canoeing position just on the floor and balance (laughs) and I think surprisingly even though I'm left-handed I think I'm a right side paddler oh interesting it's kind of like how I'm cross-eyed dominant in shooting exactly so I think I'm a right side paddler of course I couldn't stay in that position very long (laughs) without a little assistance but I kind of want to try it to see if I actually am because I love kayaking mm-hmm. and I think it would be interesting to give canoeing a try though I would absolutely get the wider like the tubby version of the canoe like that we did with Tessa Gobo when we tried rowing the more balanced version because I do not want to go in the water no no unless I intend to something to do for Olympic day if we can get out of the house uh, when we were talking about holding the boat Because when I was doing research for the interview, I was watching a lot of old footage and I'd forgotten how they held the boats at the beginning. They probably did that for rowing too. And like, oh yeah, they held the boat. And that was one of the officiating jobs I would totally want to hold the boat. Because I thought it was really weird. Like they're on their stomachs. They got the boat and then you got to let it go. And you're probably wet on that pontoon. Probably. You probably get splashed. I can't imagine that's a very comfortable job. No, but it's a very important one. It is very important. But I'm glad they took that away because... Can you imagine? Oh, my goodness. Doping the pontoon holder. I just... No. We'll have to put the... I believe YouTube's got the video of his race from Rome. So we'll put that on because you see just how it starts and the Italians at the end just kind of fall over too. It's it's pretty amazing race. So They're Italians. It's what we do. <laughs> Let's move on to our team update. 
still working on that name. It's okay. Did, did you want to try to say the acronym again? What was it? Talk. I don't remember what it was. Team key. Katafa. Takafa. Uh, oh, because you put the L from flame. I put the L because I just couldn't. I needed a consonant. It's all consonants. <laughs> It's true. It's like a Polish name. It has no <laughs> vowels at the beginning and then ends in a uh, vowel. Just put Stan on the end of it. <laughs> it could be a country. <laughs> Our team members could be citizens of their own country. <laughs> Techflistan. <laughs> oh, that actually sounds good. Techflistanis. <laughs> Techflistani. What would our flag look like? It would have the logo. It had to have part of the logo on it. Exactly. Can't have ranks. No, of course not. Our current book club selection authors, book 1964, The Greatest Year in the History of Japan by Roy Tomizawa. His book has now been translated into Japanese and it's being released this week. So congratulations to him. That's very exciting. Yes. And then everybody else is basically staying home. Kind of like us in lockdown. That's right. So let's move on to our Tokyo 2020 update. They are still working feverishly, the organizing committee, but the one bit of news that we do have is that the Team GB house has been secured for next year. So they've managed to keep the same location for next year. It's very important for those of us who might be able to get into the Team GB house. I'm not sure if it's just Team GB, but... Well, we have a friend on Team GB now. We do have a friend. I wonder if she gets into the house. She must get into the house. Hannah Brown, our uh, archery judge. I would think she would have to have GB credentials to get in. Mm. Well, we'll see. Share a pint. Yes. And so, and then the big thing from this week, it comes from the world of the IOC. Where the executive board had a meeting today. It was their first virtual meeting by teleconference. Can you, okay. Can you imagine all of the executive members trying to figure out Zoom? I mean. <laughs> I thought of Grace Hahn, our translator and former uh, assistant to uh, an IOC member. And I can just imagine all those assistants trying to say, no, no, Mr. You, no, Mr. Olympic official. You can't. No, you, they can see you. Yes. No, don't hit the mute. No, it's okay. Yes, they can hear. I can just imagine those poor assistants they deserve a gold medal for what they went through today, or at least a very stiff drink. So, and they're going to continue virtual meetings for quite some time. So, and yes. the, even the next IOC session, which is in July, that is also going to be virtual as well. Well, we know they had trouble because the media event was supposed to begin at 10 o'clock and it began at 11 o'clock. And T-Box sort of made an offhand comment going, Yes, we're in a new world and we had a, it took us a little longer than we expected. I'm like, yeah, I can only imagine. And he's trying to be his diplomatic self, like, no, sir, you, you need, oh God, I can only imagine what that meeting was like. <laughs> and the delay, like where you've got the five second delay. Oh, tough, tough, tough. Poor T-Bot. The first thing they talked about was Tokyo 2020 and which is always fun because we got to hear T-Box say Tokyo 2020. 20. But sometimes, sometimes he would say the Tokyo 2020 games held in 2021. <laughs> I know. Why does he suddenly sound like the Swedish chef 
from the Muppet Show when he does these media calls. <laughs> no. <laughs> I actually I thought of that this morning when I was waiting to hear my IOC boyfriend Kit McConnell come on, and he never came on. No, sadly, he did not. He was there, too. I mean, there were a lot of people on the call, and not too many people spoke. But top of the discussion was uh, Tokyo 2020 and the Here We Go task force, and they're working very hard to secure the Olympic Village and venues. So that's the big thing that's going on right now, and they don't really know when that's going to happen, but that's the thing. The other bit he slid in there was talking at the same time based on Agenda 2020. They're looking to optimize and streamline the scope of the games and reduce impact caused by postponement. What that means has not been discussed yet. So uh, One of the reporters from the Kyoto News asked about the cost cutting and uh, asked, like, will the torch relay be shorter? Will we have lower service levels in terms of transportation or hospitality or things like that? And he didn't, he kind of evaded that, but he said, oh, we've got to have some compromises and sacrifices by everybody. So they're supposedly leaving no stone unturned to reduce costs while maintaining the spirit of the games and the quality of the competition. Everything's being discussed. Everything is on the table. And so immediately what's on Twitter is, um, and I think this is Phil Hirsch more so than anybody uh, talking about, well, does that mean that the IOC is going to reduce their per diem and reduce the fancy hotels that they have to stay in? Because that's a big, big cost. And we know from looking at the for some previous documents, who requires a five-star hotel, who requires a four, you know how many rooms you have to secure. Yeah, that was what I took note of as well, that are we going to shorten the torch relay? We've already talked about that the arts festival may be eliminated entirely if not at least greatly reduced. So yes, will they take away all the flowers from the waiting areas? Don't know. That's a very good question. Um, Phil said on Twitter that at Rio 2016, IOC members got free lodging, free business class travel, use of a driver, and most of their meals free at one reception or VIP lounge or another. And they got $450 per diem. The 14 executive board members, other than the president, got a $900 per day diem. Yes. And their expenses were covered. Yes. So I think when he did the math, it was like over, it, it must have been over a million bucks. Oh, it has to be. What is the $900 per diem supposed to, because, you know, from my corporate days, your per diem, you either got a per diem or you got your costs. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a both. Right? Yeah. What are you spending 900 bucks on a day when you probably have free tickets and you're going to events? Watches and stakes. But you wouldn't spend that either because the organizing committee is getting that for you. Exactly. So what the IOC is doing cost-wise is they're putting together an envelope. So the envelope is going to contain $650 million to go to the cost of the games and I'm guessing another $150 million to go to the movement, which would be to the international federations, the national Olympic committees, and other IOC-recognized entities like those association of associations and things like that. Well, that's an envelope you want in your gift bag. Right, right. And, I'm, oh, my gosh, the international federations have been going crazy over the last couple of weeks because they had really been counting on the Tokyo 2020 money, they get a payout based on what the money that comes in from Tokyo 2020. And 
then all of a sudden that budget, that money got deferred for a year because it's not coming in for a while. So the IOC is going to make some payments ahead of time. The IOC also said it increased its Olympic solidarity budget by $15 million, and it's working closely with its top sponsors who are, they said, because somebody asked about the sponsors too, and they said they're fully committed to the games. There might be some rescheduling of payments. Still dying to know what, what Airbnb is doing because they're doing really poorly right now as a company. Nabisco's all set, though. Our Oreos will still be ready to go. There we go. That's all I need. One of the Chinese reporters asked about Beijing 2022. Yes. And T-Box said the reports are good uh, on both the infrastructure and the operational side. One of the questions was, will there be troubles because the Olympics are so close together now? But, you know, you go back to the old days where... It was always the same. T-Box said that uh, having the Olympics close together will raise awareness of the Olympics as a whole. And there's opportunity for that. Right, because you'll have that condensed schedule where it it can go two ways. It can either be Olympic burnout mm-hmm. or it can be we stay excited for a whole year. Yeah, it could be. That's a very good point. It, it'll be interesting to see how, because I remember being a kid and getting so excited when it was an Olympic year because you got winter and summer in the same year. But I do wonder, like, today's... The way we think today, if that's going to be something people are excited about. Well, also, when we were kids, it was one channel. Mm -hmm. You didn't have five channels. And so the amount that you saw of each Olympics was one one hundredth of what you can see now. Exactly. So the games themselves were smaller. The access was less. So it wasn't 14 days, 24 hours a day. It'll be interesting. I think may, I'm hoping that people will be missing the winter sports by the time Beijing 2022 rolls around and they want, they're want they looking forward to seeing them again. And then finally from the EB meeting was the fact that the five athletes who were elected to the IOC Athletes Commission after Rio will have their terms extended by a year because they would have been replaced this year during Tokyo. And this is the same Athletes Commission that Keegan Randall got elected to during Pyeongchang. So those athletes are Britta Heidemann, Ryu Sung-min, Daniel Goethe, and Yelena Isibayeva, and Sarah Walker. So they will be serving the IOC one more year. Extending their terms a little bit. Yeah, and, and I heard what, what T-Bog was talking about. Just we don't want to do elections like this. We don't want to have the – because the athletes won't be together because those athletes are elected by the other athletes. Right. You know, he can explain that to us. I mean, and there's 30 candidates vying for the Tokyo seats. So really getting the chance to talk to the athletes and meet them and talk to other athletes who may know them if you don't get a chance to run in the same circles and really understand what who you're voting for. Quite literally run in the same circles. <laughs> you might run in different circles or swim in different circles. But they're one big Olympic ring circle. This is true. And right now, we are all trapped in our own little ring. And we're all going to stay in our own little ring. Until this is all over. Or at least it's better. How about that? And it will get better, right? Of course. That will wrap it up for this week. Let us know what you think of the show. And don't forget that book club is coming up in July. And and now you can read Roy's book in Japanese. 
Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta, and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. You are keeping score in your head.